please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther 9. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Azuarius to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Espatha and Paretha and Adelia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vizatha the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a friend, he's a young man who uh, was in our young adult group once upon a time, and uh, now Adam is the host of the post-game radio show for the Los Angeles Clippers. 
In fact, he hosts a before game and then a halftime and then a post game show on the radio for the Clippers. Um, he's at the arena for every home game and uh, broadcasting remotely when they're on the road. And whether the Clippers win or lose, Adam talks for about an hour afterwards. And uh, they spend that time, you know, uh, in between the commercials that they sell, I'm sure, uh, analyzing the game, uh, how did the game plan go, what did we think of the lineup, what were the coaches' decisions, what were the playoff implications for the game that has transpired, debating possible trades with other teams, interviewing players and other analysts, and essentially, uh, you know, talking about something that's already happened uh, for a long time. And as far as I know, nothing that Adam or any of his guests say, to my knowledge, has ever changed the outcome of the game. Uh, sometimes, however, it's not until after the game is over that you can really start to understand why things happened the way that they did and uh, what it means for this team or for the business of basketball or for the season or for the city uh, that the team plays in. These are all of the sorts of things that Adam and his guests spend their time analyzing in addition to the stats and the events of the game. I feel a little bit like the host of a post-game show this morning uh, preaching the last two chapters of Esther. Uh, the major crises of the book have been resolved. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we spent the summer uh, going through the, the two books of the Old Testament named for women, Ruth at the beginning of the summer and now Esther at the end of the summer. And in the book of Esther, a enemy, a guy named Haman, was an enemy of the Jews and a rival of a guy named Mordecai, and uh, this morning, as we debrief the events of the book of Esther, Haman, Haman's plan has been foiled. He has been hanged. Mordecai has been installed now as the most powerful man in the Persian Empire, short of the king. Esther, the namesake of the book, has won respect and affection from King Ahasuerus. And the edict declaring the genocide of the Jews that Haman had con conspired to bring about has been countered. Uh, it's been countered with an edict from Mordecai permitting the Jews in all of Persia to defend themselves against anyone who attacks them and defend their own people with deadly force with the support of the Persian government. And so sort of all of the surprises and twists and turns, as it were, have taken place and Chapters 9 and 10 in some ways seem to be just a bit of a review. This is, you knew what was going to happen, and this is how it happened. It's a wrap-up, how it went down on the day that the edict had declared it would take effect. Who were the winners? Who were the losers? And what comes next for Mordecai and Esther and Ahasuerus? Stay tuned, right? when the post-game show continues after this message. But I think like a good post-game show, if we're going to do this this morning, this is the time to analyze what this means. And uh, 
where uh, this fits and maybe even uh, the fact that there are actually some really big questions that we should be asking when we read a passage like this. I can think of two, and they're the two that I'm going to talk about this morning. First, half of chapter 9 is taken up with a detailed account of the deaths of 75,000 people, including the names of 10 of them. The enemies of the Jews have been, in the, in, uh, the terms of the book of Esther, they've been killed, destroyed, and annihilated. Should we be celebrating? Is this justice? What does it mean about how we approach and how we pray uh, around conundrums of the enemies that we have in our life and the adversaries to our faith? Question number one about justice. And second, the second half of chapter nine is a detailed account of the institution of the Jewish holiday of Purim the commemoration of the Jews' victory over their enemies in these days. How to schedule it on the calendar, what to do to celebrate it, and how long it should last. Why build a ceremony about something like this? What is the purpose of creating and keeping a commemoration or a ritual? There's an instruction for a ritual here. Should we be people of ritual? Is it a sign of obsolete religiosity, the, the rituals that people keep? Is it just rote tradition uh, to, to come together and do the same thing every time you come to worship? Or does ritual accomplish something? And so this morning, Esther, uh, chapter 9 and 10, the Esther Post came show in two parts, justice and ritual. Let's begin with justice. In verse 1 that we read this morning, it says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over all of those who hated them. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And then the rest of chapter 9 goes on like a detailed casualty report, including specific stats like deaths per day in the capital city of Susa, including 500 on the first day and 300 on the next for a total of 800. A full casualty report of the entire Persian Empire, 75,000 people, their lives have been taken. And then specific proof of death of Every one of Haman's sons, 10 of them, by name. Now, to be completely honest, if I'm speaking for myself, it was a lot easier to get excited uh, in earlier chapters in this book when we heard about how God, by his divine providence, uh, was uh, going to provide for his people to avoid destruction. It was easier to think in a big picture way and say, this is amazing. God keeps his promises. He defends his people and uh, he will protect them and provide for them through an edict from Mordecai on the day that uh, this, that this uh, slaughter was supposed to occur. But it's a little bit harder for me to celebrate when I hear the body count of the reversal. 
Is this what we wanted? The death of 75,000 people. Is this what the Jews fasted and prayed for? And are we supposed to pray for this kind of end for those who oppose us? There's two very difficult topics that reoccur in the Old Testament that I think might help us struggle with exactly how this fits into our understanding of who God is and how we are to pray for justice as his followers. Those two uh, Old Testament concepts are the idea of holy war in the Old Testament and also the presence of what we call imprecatory psalms in the book of Psalms. We touched on the idea of holy war a few weeks ago back when we were introduced to Haman and Mordecai in chapter 2. We learned there of an ancient grudge that existed between Haman's people and Mordecai's people. Haman was an Amalekite, the descendant of the first pagan people who attempted to destroy the Jews when they came out of slavery in Egypt. Mordecai is the descendant of Saul, the first king of Israel, who had failed to eradicate the Amalekites when God instructed him to do so in 1 Samuel 15. And so uh, if, we, if we dug into that deeper, we would find that the idea of holy war in the Old Testament reoccurs and that uh, the idea of holy war in the Old Testament was not that Israel would go around and identify who their political enemies and rivals were and then God would fight for them at their beck and call to destroy those who oppose them. But rather... In the Old Testament, the idea is that God, in his all-knowing providence, knew those who were the enemies of his redemptive mission in the world. Those who were committed to, e to evil and to destruction and, uh, and were told throughout the scripture that God was committed to eradicating evil and sin from his creation. And one of the ways in the Old Testament that he determined to do that was through using Israel to defeat and destroy kings and kingdoms that stood against his loving purpose. This is what, fall, this is what Saul failed to do in 1 Samuel 15. He failed because he was seduced by the plunder that he uh, took from the king of the Amalekites, and he was uh, seduced by the prestige of capturing the king and parading him around and keeping his wealth rather than destroying it. He was unable to be faithful to God. And so through this lens, if you're thinking about it this way, uh, this is the resolution of a generationally old grudge uh, or a conflict happening between these two people. And uh, through this lens, the events of Purim, uh, instructed by Mordecai in Persia, in his edict, are just finishing unfinished business, finally being faithful to fulfill the mission that God had given Saul generations before. And there's a lot in this passage that indicates that this is how the Jews understood that that's what was happening. First, we're told three times in verse 10, in verse 15, and in verse 16 that the Jews, quote, did not lay hands on the plunder. Uh, they didn't loot the Amalekites in the empire of Persia, though they could have. The edict that they were given allowed them to. 
They understood their mission to be the fulfillment of God's judgment against evil, not an opportunity to enrich themselves by taking what was a different uh, group of people's possessions. In fact, they understood the wealth of Haman and his, his, and his people to be probably more like blood money. They didn't want to touch it. It was ill-gotten gains from idolatry and nefarious activity, like refusing the inheritance, you're refusing your inheritance from a rich uncle who was a drug trafficker. I don't, I don't want to touch that money. We're also told of the death of each of Haman's sons by name. Marissa, thank you for reading all those names. This could be, one, this could be for one of two reasons, uh, or maybe for both of these reasons. Uh, first, in ancient warfare, when a leader was killed, in this case it would have been Haman, uh, so was his entire family to ensure that no heir would survive and lead a, uh, a vengeful coup uh, to take back power. Um, this is to, uh, we're, we're being assured as we read this in the list of the names of Haman's sons, um, that there's, there's not going to be any possibility of a sequel to this movie. Uh, no dramatic moment just before the credits when the slain villain opens their eyes and promises that you better stay tuned for Esther part two. Some commentators also believe that Haman may have followed an early Iranian tradition of naming his sons after the pagan gods and idols that he served. If this is the case, then it's pretty symbolic that the author of Esther lists for us the names of the false gods who have been destroyed and humiliated by the people of the one true God. I reread an article this week. It was written in 2015 by a theologian who was struggling with how to pray after reports were coming in of the execution of Christians by Islamic State fighters in Syria. The author was struggling over whether or not it was okay to pray what the Bible calls or what theologians call imprecatory psalms. There's not very many of them. That should be a clue that this is not the primary way people are instructed to pray in the scriptures. But Psalm 58, Psalm 69, Psalm 109 are all psalms that invoke God's judgment upon the enemies of God's people, sometimes in pretty terrifying terms. Psalm 58, 8 says, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. That's tough stuff. I think our hearts cry out for justice when we, when we hear about evil like that, like extrajudiciary killing in Syria. And we're told in the scriptures that God is a God of justice. Psalm 56 says God is, a, is, the, is the God of justice. And, he, and it says it throughout the scriptures in, in a variety of different ways. So uh, maybe we are supposed to pray for the destruction of the enemies of God. Here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in when we realize, when we read in other places in scripture like Colossians 1, 21 and 22, that we were once the enemies of God. Thank God that his judgment didn't fall on me before I found his grace. I certainly deserved it. 
Jesus instructs his followers to love their neighbors and pray for their persecutors. So which is it? Do we pray for the divine destruction of God's enemies? Or do we pray for those who persecute us and love our neighbors? Maybe it's helpful to think about it in this way. We must distinguish between uh, cursing our own personal enemies and calling upon God to destroy them uh, and praying for God uh, to eliminate those who stand, those things that stand in the way of his redemptive plan. When Paul says in Romans 12, uh, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. He doesn't say you can't pray that God would pour out his justice on evil. But the distinction is subtle and important. When we condemn people on our own terms, we make ourselves God and judge. We say, I know who is evil. I know who is beyond redemption. I know who will never turn. But when we ask God to be king and recognize that he is both merciful and just, we let him be the judge. It reminds me of the story in the Old Testament of Jonah, who's called to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh and then is upset. He says at the end of the book, I didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach to them because I knew that you'd be merciful and I hate Ninevites. I wanted them all to die. This is what I think is amazing and what the gospel makes possible. We can actually pray for both that God would save the lost and that he would pour out his wrath on evil if we understand that both of those prayers bring us into the shadow of the cross of Jesus. When we pray for, for instance, the end uh, to child trafficking and that God's justice would fall on those who sell children. We might do it with a righteous conviction that someone who does something like that deserves to die a humiliating and painful death. And, and, and that won't even come close to paying for what they do. And then as soon as we arrive at that moment as a follower of Jesus, we also realize what it cost Christ to show God's mercy to us. He died a painful and humiliating death on the cross in my place because that's what I deserved. It's humbling. It's a, it's a humbling but freeing realization. Chris Bronze, the author of a book called Unpacking Forgiveness, says that one of the central ways that, that Scripture teaches us to avoid bitterness and to rest in the truth that God will see justice done is, that we, is to realize that we can rest a little easier when we know that God will hold evil and evildoers responsible. We don't have to repay evil for evil because God has promised that he is just and that he will avenge all of those things that stand between uh, him and his redemptive loving plan to save. And so what that means, and this is scary, is on the one hand, nobody escapes God's judgment. And we can pray for justice, say with righteous anger, this should not be so. And yet we also realize that the gospel tells us that we're included in that 
and that God's justice for each and every person will either fall on them or on Christ in their place by which God shows his grace to us. That through faith in him we realize there yet by the grace of God go I. And so in some ways when we pray for justice, we're praying for God to save the lost. And when we are praying for God to save the lost, we're praying for his justice to be done. And it comes together at the cross. A second question, ritual. I think the simplest way to summarize Esther chapter 9 would be to say, and this is why Jewish families celebrate Purim, period. Why? Why? Why do we celebrate? Why do we have holidays, right? Why do, we, why do we do rituals? Can the story of Purim help us understand the purpose of creating and keeping commemoration or ritual? And should we be people that do it? When we began this series, we talked about how uh, we are people that tell ourselves stories. This is how we understand who we are and what group of people or family or uh, background or history we belong to. On the 4th of July in the United States, we tell stories of the American independence to remind ourselves what it means to be free and to be an American. And if a post-game commentator does anything, it's exactly this, retelling the story of the game that has just transpired in a way that helps listeners understand how it fits into the larger picture of the season, of the team, of the business, of the sport. Verse 22 says that Mordecai decreed that on Purim, the Jews were to tell themselves the story of the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies that they should make them days of fasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. A holiday named Purim, after the, after the term pure, in verse 26 it tells us, and that, that word pure was actually the word for like the dice or the lot. And where we're, if you remember, Haman cast lots to, to decide what day he would destroy the Jews. And so Purim is named after uh, the fact that Haman cast lots against the Jews and that even when the odds were against them, they survived. Now, I understand that on, I've never personally celebrated Purim, but I understand that on Purim, Jewish families send portions of food and gifts to the poor, those for whom it's like the lot has been cast against. And this is the, the idea is that we're celebrating the portion and the provision that God gave the Jews in Persia even when the lot had been cast against them. I also understand that on Purim, the entire book of Esther is read from start to finish in the synagogue, uh, in e and each synagogue is part of the celebration, and that sometimes, I guess maybe depending on how rowdy your synagogue is, uh, people will stand and cheer each time Esther or Mordecai are mentioned, and they'll boo and hiss whenever it's talking about Haman. There's tradition. This highlights, I think, one of the most significant things about Purim. There are five other Jewish feast days established in the Old Testament, and each of them, like Passover, for instance, commemorate a miraculous event in which God, in some supernatural way, intervened for his people to protect and provide for them. But 
The book of Esther, we've been told again and again, never mentions the name of God or indicates overtly his intervention in this event. It's the story of the events and the decisions and the habits and the lives of Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Ahasuerus. It's actually the account of how God worked when Esther started telling herself a different story about who she was. She stopped saying the primary story about who I am is that I am a, uh, a beauty queen trophy wife and started believing and telling herself uh, that the story of her life was that she was a Jewish woman placed in the palace for such a time as this. It's actually the book of Esther is an account of how God worked when Mordecai started believing a different story about who he was rather than understanding his story as primarily uh, a member of Ahasuerus's court in competition with a rival named Haman. And instead, he started to understand himself as one of a long line of people chosen and loved by God for whom God had promised protection and provision. Purim is the story of how God worked sovereignly through the decisions and situations of people as the story that they told themselves about what was worth living for and what uh, was worth loving changed. As they changed in their lives, their habits and their decisions to more closely match this new story that they were believing, God worked. And that's exactly what good ritual is for. The things that we do every week uh, at Grace, for instance, if you've come several weeks in a row, you know there's a routine, right? There's some ritual, that, some, some, some creativity, but some reoccurring uh, ritual that happens. Each time we get together, um, we do certain things. It's the same thing on holidays, right? Uh, there's an important part of celebrating that holiday that tells us about our story, um, about the story we tell ourselves about who we are and what's worth loving and living for. Every Sunday, when we are called to worship at Grace, we remind ourselves that we didn't go out and find God. He called us to himself. Every time we stop singing and we confess our sins, we remind ourselves that it's not our good performance that earned us a seat in the room that we are sinners in need of grace. We cannot earn God's favor. In fact, we remind ourselves that we were enemies of God before he interceded and Christ died for us. Every time we're invited to communion table, we remind ourselves that it is Jesus' humiliation and his suffering that has absorbed God's anger against our sin. This is justice in the universe that enables God to be both just and merciful to those who follow him. Rituals become empty tradition if we let them, if we just go through the motions. I know when to stand, I know when to sit, I know what page to turn to. Uh, I think that happens when uh, we lose the story and just think if I do these things right, it'll count for me, it'll be on my, uh, to my credit and my favor. But rituals are designed to be practices that help form our hearts after the story that we say that we believe. James K.A. Smith says that we are what we love. 
And we can tell what it is that we love by looking at the routines and habits in our lives. For instance, we can be intellectually convinced that fitness is a good idea, but until we actually commit to habits and practices that don't include hours of couch potato channel surfing and fried foods, we cannot say with truthfulness that we love fitness, right? It's not until uh, we, it's not until we uh, fill our, we create habits and fill our time with ways uh, that show that we are committed to good eating and that we want to exercise our body. And sometimes it works one direction. Uh, we enjoy fitness, we, we enjoy exercise and we realize that we love fitness. And sometimes we say, I need to fall more in love with fitness, and so I'm going to change the rituals of my life to be more in line with that truth. I need to fall in love with fitness, or I'm going to be in a bad way. Liturgy and ritual are simply routines and habits that are aimed at recalibrating our hearts and our loves around the things that we say that we believe and that we say that we love when we say that we are followers of Jesus. They're practices that are aimed at making us into the people that we say that we want to be. We, we say we want to be people who are living as repentant sinners, so we practice a confession of sin every week. We say we want to be Christ worshipers, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, so we ask somebody to lead us and teach us how to do that each week. We say we want to be bringers of good news, and so uh, we identify what the good news is every time we uh, get together, and then we get sent out. We're told, now it's the time to go. Bring it out there. That's the benediction, and so on. Uh, these things are not magic, and they, uh, and they don't uh, earn favor with God. They're simply routines and habits that we have said we will do to form ourselves. Uh, when we find ourselves alone or wondering what's my next move, how we can return to the ritual or to the routine that we've been taught. I guess if I'm going to pray, it's time to confess. I guess if I'm going uh, to try to draw closer to God, I'll open his word. These are the things that the routines have taught me. God can and sometimes does work in miraculous ways to intercede in the lives of his people and transform our lives. He, uh, the, the, the stories of the scripture tell us uh, those stories, most explicitly the story of God becoming man and taking uh, God's wrath on himself and giving us his mercy. What an incredible uh, supernatural intercession he does work that way, but more often than not, like his sovereign work in the story of Esther, he works through the decisions and the habits and the faithfulness of people who are building their lives around the story that the gospel is true, that they are sinners forgiven by God's grace, that they are uh, free now from guilt and sin to serve, to give up their rights for others and so on. And this is what our ritual is designed for. It doesn't pull magic switches in our hearts. It helps us recalibrate around what we say that we believe. 